From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President April Kapu, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on the issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Today, I'm honored to speak with our guest, an AANP fellow and editor of four books, Dr. William Rosa. Billy specializes in palliative care research and advocacy with a focus on increasing health equity locally and globally. He received the prestigious Loretta C. Ford Award last year and will be presented the 2023 AANP Towers Pinnacle Award at AANP's National Conference in June for his significant contributions to advancing the NP role nationally and internationally. I was so inspired by Billy during his keynote at the AANP Fellows Winter Meeting earlier this year. And I know you will appreciate the valuable insights he will share with us today. Welcome to NP Pulse, Billy. We're so excited to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Really good to be with you, April. Well, I was just thrilled when you accepted our invitation. First, we wanted to know more about you. What made you decide to be a nurse, a nurse practitioner? Tell us more. So I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Actually, I'm a second degree nurse. So my first degree was in musical theater, actually. I went to NYU, uh, Tisch School of the Arts. So I have a degree in, in musical theater. I had a sweet little career as a dancer for a few years. And then I actually got injured very, very badly when I was about 23. I fractured my left hip and uh, needed a few surgeries, wasn't walking for a little while, and uh, <laughs> developed some real empathy for people who uh, have to go through surgeries like that. and and patients who have a lot of pain. And, you know, I think more than anything, that was such a challenging time because it wasn't just about the physical changes, but my whole life had changed, right? I had, I had lost my livelihood. My finances were a mess. Everything was kind of a disaster. And um, so once I had rehabbed, I actually went into massage therapy school first. I really just wanted to be in a quiet environment, learn about this body, this instrument that I had just broken, um, be around healing people be quiet. And I was so, so moved by the uh, clinical outcomes in the massage clinic. So because we were doing medical massage, um, I remember taking care of one patient actually with chronic asthma. And she she described to me uh, really needing her emergency inhaler multiple times a week for all these years since she was a little girl. And I spent an hour just massaging you know, her diaphragm and her intercostals and her scalenes and her upper back. And she wrote a letter to the clinic saying how for the first time in her memory, she didn't need her emergency inhalers for a whole week. And I was so moved by, by that story that I just was kind of searching for a way to um, develop some kind of skill set where I could do that for more people and could be of service uh, to more people in that way. And so... Uh, that's when I went to nursing school. 
And so I went right from massage therapy school into nursing school. And my first job out uh, of school was as a critical care bedside nurse at NYU. Oh, wow. Yeah, critical care. That's my background as well. So 23, 23 years old. And you took a big life change. But it sounds like it's worked out well for you. <laughs> I used to call it the dark time, but now I, I um, you know, all these years later, I realized what an, a tremendous, tremendous gift it was. Um, you know, that's when I started my own meditation practice and my own spiritual practice and just um, realizing that there was so much more to who I am and, and what I could do in the world other than perform, other than, you know, be on stage. And that was really, that was a really, really meaningful kind of pivot point for me. You use all of your senses just when you're talking. You uh, listen, you talk so well, but you're very expressive. So, so you were a critical care nurse, then what? So I was a critical care nurse, and I think about a year into critical care practice, I started NP school. Uh, and I really went back and forth between nursing education and being an NP. I just knew that originally I had wanted to be a, a nurse anesthetist. That seemed to be my goal. And then the more I was shadowing in the OR and kind of observing, I just realized that that is not my personality at all. Um, and it was really working with the palliative care team in the critical care units. It was really building relationships with the family caregivers who were at bedside. It was really um, alleviating the, the symptom distress of my patients and procuring their humanity um, in times when they're so easily dehumanized, that really brought me joy and, and brought my daily life meaning in so many ways. And so that's, I decided ultimately to go to NP school with the, with the goal of becoming a palliative care nurse practitioner. And then when I got to the other side of that, I actually took a nursing education role anyway, <laughs> because I didn't see NPs being used the way I envisioned mm -hmm. being an NP. I saw NPs being used as, this is the only time I will use this phrase ever, but I saw them literally being used as physician extenders. Um, just really poor um, utilization of mm -hmm. their skill set, of their, of their knowledge. And I just didn't want to work uh, under that lens. So I, I did it clinical education. I was responsible for all of critical care education uh, and hemodialysis, uh, hemodialysis at this major medical center. And then uh, actually had the opportunity to move to Africa for a year, also in an education role. So I actually moved to Rwanda in East Africa for one year as a, a part of the Human Resources for Health program. And it was a program with all of these medical schools and nursing schools, schools of public health. And we were really creating the first master's program in nursing in the country uh, across eight specialty tracks. And so even though they weren't nurse practitioners per se, uh, they were the first graduate level nurses that would graduate from University of Rwanda as a cohort. Um, and so we ended up graduating uh, the first cohort of 111 students in 2017. And then when I came back from Africa, uh, I did a palliative care clinical fellowship as an NP at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and stayed with them for several years uh, per diem as I did my PhD. And then jumped right into a psycho-oncology and palliative care research postdoc fellowship. And now I'm faculty at Sloan Kettering, 14 years of education later. <laughs> <laughs>
and just keeps going. It just keeps going. So, okay. So a couple things. So I, first I wanted to just mention what you did in Rwanda is so important and nurse practitioner is not a global term, but it's very much a, a very similar role and, and tremendous uh, increase in access to care. And many of those nurses that you graduated are, are, the only caregivers in their communities in many parts. I want to go back to the palliative care because as a critical care nurse, you take care of people, the, the patients and their families in really difficult times. And in, in many cases, they're coming in, they're, they're thinking that all of these medical interventions are going to help and they're going to walk out of there and it's, it's it, things are going to be okay. There's just this feeling of you're going to do all of these things and we're going to walk out of here and everything's going to be fine. But in, as we know in critical care, there are, is a point where the medicines and the machines and all of that, and you have to really think, is this what my family member wants? So was there a moment where you decided palliative care is where I want to be? Even as you were just describing that, April, I was just, my whole belly was on fire. Just, you know, the memories of working in that environment. I think it's so it's, it's intensive for nurses, you know, and I think I just want to shout out to all the ICU nurses and critical care nurses because it's really, really hard work. And I think what you were just alluding to, what families and patients walk in with is really hope, right? They have this hope that they don't want to let go of. The moments where I really connected to palliative care, I, I don't know if it was a just one moment, but it was the moments in those family meetings where... Um, I would be sitting with the palliative care nurse practitioner, Phyllis Sutton, I remember her name, just taught me so much, and and the palliative care attending, Joe Lowy, and I would just listen to them having these values and goals of care discussions with family members and somehow maintaining and weaving this thread of hope um, throughout the realities of what was happening, right? New things to hope for. What, what can we hope for now? Um, you know, expressing genuine empathy that maybe we we aren't where we were when you came into the ICU and we're in a different place, but there's still a lot of things we can do in terms of providing comfort, making sure that your loved one has a dignified death, making sure that, you know, loved ones are at bedside, that we can do everything possible to alleviate suffering um, and optimize the quality of whatever life is left. And there was something about those conversations that were that just made me feel alive, just made me feel like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I think I would get validation from patients and families and in moments that completely surprised me. I remember coming to work one day and, um, you know, at NYU Medical Center, <laughs> it's called uh, NYU Langone Medical Center now. And uh, when I was there, just these like tuna can versions of elevators, I mean, just like it felt like dozens of people just crammed in trying to get to their units in the morning. And I remember getting to the elevators had to be 745 in the morning and um, cramming into this elevator with my, my Starbucks. Cause I was just like a major coffee addict and you really didn't want to talk to me before I had coffee, you know, like mm -hmm. that, that kind of person. <laughs> and um, so there we were like 30 people in this elevator and I'm up against a wall and a woman on the complete opposite side of the elevator just went, <gasps> you're Billy Rosa. And I, you know, I like was totally uncaffeinated and <laughs> couldn't figure out like why this woman was saying my name. 
And like clockwork, you could not have written the script any better. The elevator door opened and everybody except for me and this woman got off the elevator. <laughs> and we were just looking at each other and I just said, so how you doing? <laughs> and she just looked at me and said, you took care of my mother when she was dying. And she started to cry and she said, and you cared for her like she was your mother. And she said, and you took care of me and my sister like we were your sisters. And the, the most amazing part of that story is I had no idea who she was. Didn't remember her, didn't remember her mother, didn't remember her sister. And I just got off the elevator that day after I, after I gave her a hug and just thought, wow, like this is the gift of what we get to do as nurses. This is, this is palliative care. This is just good care. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so let's say I was not that nurse. Let's say I was just a, a wiped out cranky nurse, right? She probably mm -hmm. would have remembered that too. And that conversation might have gone the complete opposite direction. Way. And yeah. I just remember the, you know, what I walked away with was just the reminder of the power that we wield every day walking into the rooms mm -hmm. of these patients and families. And I think it was experiences like that, that just reminded me, you know, that alongside all the family meetings with Phyllis and Joe, that really reminded me that, wow, I can really make a long lasting difference, not just in the care of someone, but in the, in the lives of the people who survive them. There's a real beauty, a dignity in that. And, and every single moment is so precious and we do give our, give of ourselves uh, as as nurses, as nurse practitioners, but it's so powerful what you can do in palliative care. And it's so powerful because I may be a part of her life still, but she's clearly still a part of my life, right? I'm still telling that story. Um, and I still don't know her name and it doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know? It made such an impression, such an impression. Now, Billy, I, I'm, I'm looking at... Um, all of the different things that you have been doing. We could talk for days about this. But recently you authored a book, The Nature of, Suff the Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Nursing. So what is this book all about? Yeah, thank you for, for bringing it up. So that book will be released this summer, 2023. And um, I got to co-edit it with one of my dearest mentors, Dr. Betty Farrell. And so this is a second edition of uh, the seminal text that she wrote with Dr. Nessa, Nessa Coyle back in 2008. Um, and, you know, the, the edition in 2008 was really Betty and Nessa writing. It was, it was primarily focused on cancer and it really talked, really attempted to equip nurses with the skills they needed to bear witness to suffering and alleviate it in, in their everyday nursing practice. And so what Betty and I did for this edition was we really expanded the focus and we took it from five chapters to 18 chapters. Um, and we invited over 30 nurse leaders and researchers and clinical experts uh, across all types of illnesses and conditions and um, parts of the, of the, lifespan to really talk about suffering in their various domains. Mm -hmm. And it is such a beautiful book. I, I was editing it the other week, the final proofs for it. And I was just in tears reading this, this one chapter on um, suffering and humanitarian crises that we had um, Dr. Sheila Davis, who's the CEO of Partners in Health and 
uh, one of her nursing colleagues from Haiti writing and talking mm-hmm. about everything that has happened in Haiti after all of their earthquakes and, and public health mm-hmm. emergencies and talking about you know, the suffering of both nurses and the public at large there, just just wrapping themselves around resilience and what it means to be resilient and what it means to really create long-term investment in nursing, not just in response to emergency, but as, but as really an um, investment of the welfare of society. And just, uh, just the whole book is just incredible. So I think that the real aim of the book is to give pragmatic guidance to nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, nurses, nurse researchers, anyone in nursing with the skills they need to really be with suffering and, and seek to alleviate it as a part of their everyday duty to care. So you went from five to 18 chapters. So definitely <laughs> a, a labor of love. You included some um, content around COVID-19. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh my gosh. Well, everything's changed. Yes. Everything is different. I don't think we're talking about the same profession. We're certainly not speaking about the same healthcare system or social care system. We're certainly not talking about the same mental health needs and disparities. I mean, we are talking about a national and global population that has been rocked by this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think it requires us to talk about it. I think people are burned out of talking about COVID. And at the same time, we have to recognize that there will be ongoing impacts of COVID on the the mental health and well-being of nurses, of nurse practitioners, and of the people that we're taking care of. So COVID-19 implications were a core component of most of the chapters in the book, just talking about those core changes to how we see illness, um, how we see mental health, you know, the increased social discourse on disparities, on structural racism, on marginalization for all communities, just how we can really own accountability for all of those aspects of society as a component, again, of alleviating suffering. We learn so much and, and, and definitely it's a pivotal, pivotal time for us in terms of learning and, and being able to shape our future going forward. And we talk a lot uh, about health equity and just really working hard to reduce health disparities. And we talk about this concept of social determinants of health all the time. And tell us, that was really a, a big part of your book as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way we talk about social determinants of health is it's lovely. I mean, you know, it's great, but I think we need, I think it needs expansion and it needs practicality. Mm-hmm. And I think nurses need increasing accountability for how they actually integrate it into practice. And so a few years ago, I don't know if you know, I had led a, a global international policy report for the World Innovation Summit for Health called Nurses for Health Equity uh, Guidelines for Tackling the Social Determinants of Health. And I worked with this incredible global team, including Professor Sir Michael Marmot from the UK, who used to be president of the World Medical Association and, and our international steering committee. Uh, we really created these 70 international practice guidelines, guidelines for the clinician, guidelines for at the national level and guidelines at the global level, what international associations could do to really help nurses tackle the social determinants of health. And we looked at domains like advocacy and nursing education and research and clinical practice and how we could hold health systems accountable as being good commissioners for the workforce. And so a lot of that was on my mind when we started this book. And there's a brilliant, brilliant 
chapter by Drs. Shuk, Espina, and Narun from University of Washington about social suffering and the naturalization of inequality, all about how we have become so accustomed to inequality. It's so ingrained in the structures in which we function um, that, that we really need pragmatic tools to see it and to dismantle it and to rebuild something that that resembles justice. And, and some of the things they talk about in there is that every nurse can use, one is critical conscientization, really making sure that we have this self-reflexive practice so that we're not perpetuating inequities from our stance of privilege, whatever privilege it is that we have. Uh, the second is structural competency, really becoming aware of the structural competencies that trickle down into the inequities that we see, right? They inform the inequities that we witness and um, address as nurses. And then the third is advocacy, activism, and allyship. And as you know, I'm, I'm just all about advocacy and, and making sure that nurses can develop their advocacy skill set. And so, yeah, the social, I mean, when we think about suffering and the social determinants of health, you know, I think the, the World Health Organization definition of the social determinants of health are the environments in which people are born, grow, live, work, and play. And I don't think we talk enough about the fact that the social determinants of health are also the environments in which people suffer, die, and grieve, right? These social determinants inform who suffers, how they suffer, how much they suffer, if they have access to alleviating that suffering. And so when we're looking at social determinants, it's not just it's just not, it's not just fancy language. It's something that actually has to be embedded into our consciousness as nurses, our awareness, how we speak to patients, how we engage them and their families and their uh, communities, right? How we partner with communities and research endeavors to make sure that our research is meeting the goals of the community and actually um, serving the community through our findings. Yeah, my hope is that the, the social determinants are effectively integrated into this next edition of the book uh, and that it'll really serve nurses in, in just considering the social determinants a little differently or maybe giving them, you know, concrete skills to think about in their everyday practice. You describe it so beautifully and you see a person, you see them physically, who they are there, but social determinants of health is everything, everything that goes into that and impacts that person. And the nurse is the one that kind of pulls all of that out and, and, and pulls together that story. Well, yeah. I mean, all behaviors make sense in context. Mm -hmm. All behaviors make sense in context. And, right. and all health disparities make sense in context, right? And, you know, I often think about my colleagues in Rwanda, you know, so if you think about it, you, you alluded to this earlier, but if you think about nurses, so nurses, there, there are 28 million nurses around the world. We're 60% of the healthcare workforce. We spend the most face-to-face -face time with uh, patients of any health professional. We're the ones most likely to be embedded in the communities that we serve. And in many parts of the world, we're probably the only healthcare provider that most, most patients will see. It's, it's just a tremendous consideration that nurses should, um, should really keep at the forefront of their mind in order to actually provide care that is tailored to this person and this family and this community. And this is the very unique and beautiful contribution that nurses bring to care. So if I were listening to this podcast right now, I'd be trying to rewind because I'd want to be make sure I knew the name of the book. So I'm just going to repeat it one more time, The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Nursing. And as you described inequities earlier, 
I, I just immediately thought that we do, we live in this construct of inequities and there's, you know, it's almost an acceptance, but it's also, um, to some degree feeling that you're powerless to make any change to the inequities. That's just the way things are, that type of, of thought. Yeah. So I think the reason that I'm such an advocate for advocacy is a, it's, it's embedded in our code of ethics. I mean, when we look at the ANA code of ethics for nurses, it's, it's right there. And yet I think it has a really bad rep for being something frivolous or extra we have to do. We have all these workforce shortages, all these things we have to do, um, not enough hands on deck, et cetera. People are burnt out. And among all of the complaints and restraints, nothing changes if nothing changes. And so advocacy is the opportunity to, for nurses to step up and change, change practice, change culture, change approach, change how evidence is integrated into practice. Even if it's just what you have control over that day as a, as a clinician or practitioner, changing just that to role model what could be different. Um, advocacy ties into all of that. And, and I referenced an article that I wrote with colleagues from the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care and the Center for the Advancement of Palliative Care. Um, and we wrote an article called The Top 10 Tips Palliative Care Clinicians Should Know About Evidence-Based Advocacy. And in that article, we talked about this loop between clinical practice and advocacy, this practice that we have every day that is the heart of what we do that really informs how we advocate for change and how we use data to support that advocacy, right? Really using data to demonstrate the unmet needs of populations and then using the personal insights of nurses to really humanize that story and make sure that we're leaving decision makers with really vivid and tangible examples of what that looks like in, in the everyday world. And really using that bedside practice to inform advocacy at all levels of governance and decision-making. And it's ultimately the changes that that advocacy will promote that trickles back down to change practice more broadly and sustainably. And so I left a lot of the listeners at the conference with some tips. And, you know, I think, I think one of my favorite tips of the ones that I talk about is just to use the skills you already have, which sounds so pedantic on its face. And yet it's just, we forget as nurses or what I observe is nurses forgetting how many skills they have in their back pocket that they just don't use every day. And, you know, namely communication skills, right? Nurses know how to communicate. Empathic, person-centered communication. We know how to set an agenda, invite an agenda, negotiate an agenda. We know how to express empathy. We know how to track what's happening with somebody cognitively and emotionally at the same time. We know how to move discussions forward one step at a time, provide edu education and tailor that education where needed. We know how to check people's understanding and summarize what we've heard and ask open-ended questions and, and use silence where we need to. And we know how to do all those things. And so when we're talking to decision makers who are human beings and have likely been consumers of the healthcare system, we need to speak to them just like we would any other human being in our care. 
right? We need to elicit what's most important to them. We need to understand their values and needs. We need to frame what it is we do in a way that they can understand, in a way that meets their needs. And we need to see where we can align our advocacy asks with what their desires and goals are as public servants, right? Or as institutional servants, you know, if we're speaking to somebody in our health system. That really serves as the foundation for so much of advocacy, leaning into our communication skills, seeing ourselves as expert communicators, expert listeners, expert speakers, right? If you could walk into a space with that kind of confidence, what would change? What would be different? And being authentic, I think that's a huge part of what we bring to these conversations. So there's a quote on your website. It's working toward an equitable and human-centered health system. Why did you choose that particular quote? Well, I think it was the only quote that would fit in that space. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think if I were to reflect on what's most important to me in nursing and as a nurse, the first is justice. It's more this idea of liberation, of the idea that you know, there are all these structures that prevent people from getting the care they need. Basic, basic care. We have thousands of people committing suicide around the world every every day because they can't get access to mental health care. We have a climate crisis that is impacting the poorest populations around the world mm -hmm. and will continue to impact them the harshest. One of the things I talk about most are the palliative care inequities, which really are a moral travesty where nearly 90% of the world has no access to palliative care in the context of serious illness and end of life, right? 83% of the world has no access to opioids for moderate to severe pain relief and shortness of breath at end of life. And nursing is a social justice profession. It is, uh, it is a profession rooted in equity. When you think of those 28 million nurses, 60% of the workforce, if it's not nurses who are going to bring the power of just their quantity alone to the forefront to ensure um, that equity is prioritized, then, then really, who's going to do it? I mean, honestly, who will do it, right? Not only do we have the, the association, uh, association and organizational support behind us, but we have a real profession that's prepared to support us in achieving that equity, right? This is where we have an opportunity to actually make the world a better place at the risk of sounding idealist. There's this quote by Emerson, and he says, to know one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. I mean, that's my purpose when I am with another human being who is suffering, and I'm able to, even if I can't alleviate it, if I can just be with it and provide accompaniment through it, that brings purpose and meaning to my life. That is the purpose and meaning of nursing, in my opinion, providing comfort and alleviating suffering. And so if I pictured a health system that was able to overcome those barriers to equity, where every human life was valued in an equitable way, right? Where we didn't have these false narratives guiding policy that some lives just matter more than others. And then we were able to provide care in a way that ensured the dignity and the personhood of every human being and every community. I mean, that's, that's a really, it's a really different vision than what we have now. I think that's why, you know, those are the two words that often come to mind when I think about my work. Right. Human-centered. Human-centered. Yeah. I mean, we're all so different. We're all so different. I don't think you can create standards for a human being. I think you can create standards for high-quality care. And those standards will always have to be tailored and adapted for the human being in front of you. Always. 
Well, Billy, now you've got a lot going on here. You've got the book coming out, your keynote speaker just about everywhere, your research is read in every classroom. And congratulations, Billy. We're so excited. You are the recipient of the Jan Towers Pinnacle Award. How wonderful is that? Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Now you've got this conference that you have every year and the U.S. Celebration of World Hospice and Palliative Care Day, a virtual coming together. Yes, yes. I just felt like there needed to be an opportunity for us to come together as a global specialty of palliative care. And, you know, palliative care is inherently interprofessional. So I'm really speaking about not only nurse practitioners, but um, nurses, PAs, social workers, pharmacists, chaplains, physicians, to really share wisdom about what was happening in the world and what they were experiencing, but also to build community, really to remind people, to nourish and feed them, to remind them that they were a part of something bigger than themselves. And we've now done the conference every year with those same goals of sharing wisdom and, and building community. Uh, sounds very exciting and, and, and super excited that anybody can join. So Billy, I have so enjoyed our time together today and I just, I wish it wasn't ending. I feel like I've just been recipient of so much, so much information and just helped to renew my spirit of being a nurse and a nurse practitioner speaking with you today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our NP audience today? I would just say, you know, please, please take care of yourself. I just see so many colleagues who are tired and need a break. And uh, I just want to acknowledge you and say it's okay to be tired and to need a break. And I needed a break from clinical practice. I took it. It was the best thing I ever did for myself. We just, we work really, really hard. So I just want to say thank you to everyone listening. Thank you for what you do. You make the world a better place wherever you're working just by showing up just by um, committing to excellence in your practice. And, and I see that and I'm grateful for that. And um, I just really, really ask that you take care of yourself because you're the most precious thing. Yeah, and make a huge impact. And you never know where you're making that impact. Just like all those years ago in the elevator with your coffee, you made a tremendous impact. And we are all making an impact every day with every single person that we come in contact with. And it's really the whole concept. I love the human-centered and whole person care. You say that uh, quite a bit. Um, it's really, really the essence of what we do. Thank you. Thank you, April. Thank you for joining us, Billy. And thank you to all who are listening. AANP offers a wealth of resources that can assist you as you work to address social determinants of health in your community and increase health equity for your patients. Visit aanp.org to find articles, patient education tools, clinical guidelines, and continuing education activities that will support your clinical practice. There are several CE activities related to palliative care currently available in the AANP CE Center, and sessions on this topic and many others will be available at the 2023 AANP National Conference in New Orleans on June 20th through 25th. 
Don't miss a keynote address by former NASA astronaut Joan Higginbotham, who will inspire us all to break through barriers and take our practices to all new heights. With more than 330 live CE sessions and hands-on workshops and 80 more pre-recorded on-demand sessions, this is an AANP national conference that you will not want to miss. I am so looking forward to seeing you all there. Thank you for listening to NP Pulse. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Thank <laughs> you.